children up to the age of three can go to the back. For the rest of us, we are turning to a new book today. We are in the book of Luke. We're going to be here in Luke. Uh, We have a three-part sermon series to end off the year. And then, um, well, actually, the very last Sunday of the year, the 31st, we will start the book of James. But uh, I thought it was uh, great timing for us to... Uh, study the incarnation we are just we're just finishing Colossians and it's a good transition to the book of James and uh, with it being uh, Christmas time I thought this would be a good time to um, to talk about this topic specifically so um, why the incarnation well I've given you a couple of reasons but uh, for us in here as Christians uh, the the incarnation uh, should be up there with the resurrection. Uh, we tend to celebrate the resurrection, and, and you know, of course, around Easter time, we we celebrate that, and we acknowledge that that is um, that's an important event. Uh, that's when our Savior defeated death, rose from the grave, and later ascended to heaven and assumed his uh, his position as the King of Kings and Lords of Lord of Lords. Uh, so the resurrection is widely celebrated. Uh, when it comes time for Christmas, I think that there are some Christians who really don't look at the incarnation specifically. It's just the celebration of the, uh, the gift giving, the time with your family, and all this other stuff. We hear, we hear it all the time, Jesus is the reason for the season. Uh, but in practice, you know, I, I think some miss the point. And for us, we cannot miss the point. We have to acknowledge the importance of the incarnation because without the incarnation, we do not have Christianity. Without the incarnation, we do not have a savior. Without the incarnation, you and I are lost in our sins. So it's that important. And when you look at what incarnation means, it's, it's basically an embodiment in flesh or it means taken on flesh in it. Um, it refers to a deity who is embodied in flesh or a deity who takes on flesh. Well, in reference to God, it is him entering his creation by becoming part of it. Now, as I wrote that down, I sat to think about what that meant. And it's just like one of those moments where your head explodes. If you really sit down and really think about that comment itself, it's so profound. Uh, you know, a God who enters his creation uh, and becomes a part of it. Um, it, it. Yeah, the implications of that just go on and on and on, and you can think about that for a very long time. But that's what the incarnation is. And today's passage covers the divine pronouncement of the incarnation uh, to a what I'd like to call a lowly vessel from nowhere important. And the reason why I say that it is divinely pronounced is because uh, a messenger from heaven is, is sent to uh, pronounce the incarnation. And so uh, pronounce or announce the incarnation. Uh, so through this passage, we'll see the, the enormity of the grace of God and also the greatest benefit we have being called the children of God. Uh, the very first thing I want to look at within the passage that I'm about to read is that we see a very unlikely vessel in the incarnation. Let's look at 
Luke chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 26 through 38, and then we'll get into the text. It says here, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man who was, whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who, has call, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. So as we look at this passage, the very first thing that I like to point out is the fact that we see a very unlikely vessel. And when I talk about vessel, I, I talk about Mary. Uh, Mary is the one who was chosen by God to uh, carry his, his son. And when we look at that, that has caused a lot of um, dissension when it comes to Mary and, and maybe some ill feelings toward her. But in fact, when we look at scripture, uh, Mary is 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 it seems very upright righteous from a creaturely standpoint and we'll talk about that but the problem with mary is that she is revered and worshiped by many because she is considered the mother of god now that statement in itself is pretty profound too and it feels weird to even say that but um it, it is what it is in fact that's what she is revered for and that's why she is worshiped by many uh, those who see her that way and are worshipped, or worship her, they are taught that as the Lord's mother, she influences her son, who would be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, by convincing him to act on, on people's behalf in their prayer. And they think, so if, if Christ isn't listening to me, uh, or just in case Christ doesn't want to listen to me specifically, I can pray to his mother, and, and his mother will convince him to act on my behalf. Now, naturally, we see the, the relationship there because uh, normally we have those, that type of relationship within the family structure. If you're trying to get a, a kid to listen to you, it's not necessarily your kid. Uh, you go and tell his mother or father the trouble that you're having, and they go and fix the problem. Well, the problem is, is that the Lord is obviously higher than Mary. Uh, we have the creator of all things, and then we have one who, ha who was created by him. And so there's this, 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 this distinction between the two, 
Uh, one is God, the other is not. But this is what people are taught and this is what people believe. And um, us bring, being brought up in our culture, uh, many of us have, we, we know this and, and, and we have uh, been affected by this. Uh, some of us have been influenced by this in the past. But it was by God's grace that we came to the saving faith and also the saving knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he alone is our intercessor uh, between uh, us and the Father. But that's where there is a, speaking of Mary, that's where there is a whole prayer dedicated to Mary. And uh, I would argue that when it comes to Mary, she has been elevated to the level of God by so many, which is idolatry. Naturally, that turns Mary into a bad person. Uh, you know, if, if you do not believe in that, if you, and, and, and if that is idolatry to you, uh, you start to look at Mary as this bad person. But really and truly, I don't see anything where it's her fault that people worship her as an idol. From a creature standpoint in Scripture, she seems like an upright woman uh, who believed in God. Uh, she believed that her son was the savior of the world. She humbly obeyed the Lord, and uh, she was faithful. Now, she wasn't perfect, as some believe, but she was those things that I, uh, that I just pointed out. She was a sinner saved by grace, uh, but of character, she was of good character. But when we look at Mary, we must acknowledge that she has just as much power over God that we do, which is none. We have no power over God. She was at the mercy of God just as we are. He was sovereign over her just as he is sovereign over us. And from Luke's account, uh, there are certain things that, that he points out about Mary. First of all, she was from the town of Nazareth was, and, and from the region of Galilee. And uh, this was not considered an important town in Jesus' day. Um, it, it, that's why I say she was from nowhere important. It's like, and I don't want to offend anybody when I say stuff, but like, it's like my father was from Westoff, right? You, you pass right through Westoff. It's like, okay, where is that? If you're not from this area, you're asking, where is Westoff? I live in Inez right now. I mean, you can pass over it with, you know, an overpass and you're, you're right by it. It's like one of those towns where it's just like in the middle of nowhere. Now, if you live there, just it's okay. You know, you, you, you live in the middle of nowhere. That, that's just it. But she was from nowhere important. And um, she was also a virgin, which is important to the story of the incarnation. Uh, Mary at this time was about 12 to 13, year old, 13 years old, scholar believe. But she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, to be betrothed was a binding engagement. Um, and it was, it was treated differently than what we would treat an engagement today. Because in order to break uh, someone being betrothed, you had to have an official divorce to end it. So, as I said, it was more, more binding, but that was her situation. Notice what she wasn't. Uh, she wasn't the daughter of a king or the daughter of a rich man. Uh, her family wasn't prominent from 
a worldly perspective. Uh, basically, she was poor. Um, from a worldly perspective, she was considered pitiful and she was unimportant in the eyes of the world. But she's the one that God chose as a vessel for the incarnation, for his son to be born. Um, that's pretty amazing. And even that speaks to the gospel story. Because as I tell you that, as I point out those traits about her, her being poor, pitiful, and unimportant, uh, but yet she's the one chosen by God, it should remind you of something. In fact, it should remind you of you. It should sound very familiar to you. Uh, when God chose you, you were poor, pitiful, and unimportant. So, therefore, you get no credit for God choosing you. All glory and honor goes to him. And the Bible points to that very often. Um, here's one passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, but we have this treasure, speaking of the Holy Spirit, in jars of clay, speaking of our mortal bodies, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the Bible is pointing out in this passage that we have this wonderful gift, this important gift. The, the, we have this treasure, and this treasure is stored in jars of clay that are easily broken, easily uh, defeated. And the reason why the Holy Spirit resides in us is not to show the world our glory, but to show God's working in us, to show his glory that he, he can use poor, pitiful, and unimportant people like us. The Bible tells us that the angel Gabriel was sent from the presence of God directly to Mary to make this announcement. And the very first thing spoken to Mary by the angel was this. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, this is one of the passages that is used to falsely revere and worship Mary. Because many translate this to Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Now there's a big difference, especially with the way they interpret this and, and see this. Uh, because this rendition of the verse is used to support the belief of the Immaculate Conception. Now I'm not talking about the Immaculate Reception. That's a totally different thing. Only, only sports guys and sports ladies in the room will get that. The Immaculate Reception was in 1972. Terry Bradshaw threw a pass, bounced off a helmet of a teammate. Franco Harris caught the ball right before it was about to hit the ground and ran in for a touchdown, and they won the game, and it was a playoff game. They called that the Immaculate Reception. Not the same thing. In fact, I think the Immaculate Reception is um, it's more impressive than the Immaculate Conception. Because the Immaculate Conception, people think, oh, okay, well, that pertains to Christ. Because Mary had Christ, and then uh, that was, that was, that's what that's talking about. No, it, it's actually 
a heretical teaching. The Immaculate Conception is not about Christ, but it's about Mary. And what the Immaculate Conception teaches is that Mary was the one who was born immaculate. She was the one who was born without original sin. And the reason why she was born without original sin is so that she could be the vessel that carried the Son of God. Now, big problem with that is that that is a human teaching and a tradition and nothing that comes from Scripture. So that's the verse that is used. Mary, full of grace, as if she inherently had grace when she was born. Or, in other words, as people view her as grace coming from her as it comes from God. So that is, that is the big deal. And I see a lot of eyes opening and heads shaking like, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what that's about. So that's why I say she's been elevated to deity. She's been elevated to God. And we can see the idolatry behind that. No doubt she was chosen by God. But not because she was sinless. In fact, when you look at the translation or you look at the wording here uh, when it comes to this verse, um, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The phrase favored one indicates that Mary has received grace, not that she is the one who gives it. She has received grace. She's not the source of grace to others. See, the grace that Mary found was the same unmerited grace and when I say unmerited grace unearned grace it's the same unmerited grace that has been given to you if you are in Christ I could say the same thing to you if you know Christ today you are a favored one you have been Chosen by God, not because you are a good person, not because you do good, not because of your potential, but you have been chosen by God because of his grace. And that is the appropriate answer. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise the Lord. Because without him, we would be nothing. And that's, that stands true for Mary today. So in Mary, we see this unlikely vessel for the incarnation. But it's so awesome because we can see the connection between us and Mary. Just as God has chosen us as a vessel for the Holy Spirit, we are a very unlikely vessel. We are like jars of clay. We offered God nothing, but yet he's done this wonderful work in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. They say this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That is us. We are foolish. We are weak. We are low and despised. 
Without God, we are nothing. But God chose us, and in choosing us, he has done a wonderful thing, and all glory goes to him. So we are to consider ourselves blessed to have found favor with God. And I, I am convinced that Mary had that attitude. She had the attitude of, why did you choose me? What in the world did you see in me? How blessed am I to be chosen as your instrument, Lord? That needs to be our response. The life we live, what we've been called to. It's like, Lord, I, I don't deserve anything I have. How can I be of service to you? So we have that part of it. But then also in this story, we have this, uh, this, this announcement of a great promise, almost fulfilled. And so whenever people announce a pregnancy, pregnancy today, it's a wonderful thing. Uh, there's been all kinds of different ways uh, to be able to do that. And uh, it's exciting because you get to see if it's a boy or a girl and, 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 you know, everybody gets to be a part of that. And, uh, and it's awesome. But can you imagine how big of a deal this was? Can you imagine this? This was, look, listen, I've seen a bunch of pregnancy announcements. I've never seen one and a lot of creative ones where, you know, you, you got a lot of things going on. You got the balloons popping. Uh, you got those, the cannons that fire out, you know, blue or, or, or pink. You have the cakes that are being cut. Uh, there's probably a whole bunch of other things I haven't seen, but I have not seen an angel descend from heaven to come down to a little party that's going on and saying they are going to have a boy or girl. That's pretty unique, I would say. So that's how big of an event this is. It was so big that an angel who normally resides in the presence of God was sent by God to make this announcement before it even happened, or I should say right before it happened. That's, why, that's because Jesus was no ordinary baby and he would be no ordinary man he was God in the flesh and this is what Gabriel says about Jesus uh, verses 32 and 33 he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. First of all, let's look at that statement. Um, it's plainly said he will be great. Now, if you talk about an understatement, this is like the, the, the biggest understatement of human history. He will be great. But we have to understand there are some things that are so great it's hard to describe them. And, and so just plainly saying he is great it, 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 it does, it's, it's no detriment to the name of God. It's just that is a true definition of greatness. He is, he, is, he is great. In other words, he is remarkable or he is out of the ordinary. But how could we describe God? How could, how could scripture describe God other than being great or other than being perfect or other than being holy? So he is the epitome of greatness. He is remarkable, perfectly remarkable. He is um, 
like no one who's ever existed. Not the way we use those phrases, out of the ordinary, remarkable. He is exceedingly above those things. And that's why I say it's the greatest understatement in human history. But he is also, uh, the, part of the announcement is that he will be called the Son of the Most High. Now, normally this title was reserved for a king. Well, Jesus was no ordinary king. By this time, there had been many kings. But Jesus, as the Son of God, he was and is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And also part of the announcement was that God will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, Joseph, being his earthly father, um, was a descendant of David. And what's awesome about this is that we just finished 2 Samuel, so that's very familiar to us whenever it was pronounced to David that he would have someone on his throne forever. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 says this, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God says, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come, or who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, obviously, when we preached through that, we told you this had a double meaning. Number one, this was talking about his son Solomon. But number two, in the greater meaning, and this is how David saw it in others because it's recorded throughout Scripture in this way, is that this was the, the announcement God was making for the Savior to come through the line of David. And here he comes. Here's, here's that announcement. He will reign over the house of Jacob uh, forever and his kingdom, there will be no end. It's an awesome, awesome announcement that is, that is given by this angel. When we look at the name of Jesus, it means Yahweh is salvation. All of this, all of what's being announced here points to um, the conception and also the birth of the promised Messiah. This was important to the Jews because from the very beginning of when God called them as a nation, they had been waiting for the Messiah. In fact, you could say from, when I say the beginning, I mean the very beginning. Uh, you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the pronouncement of a Savior. That he, he a Savior, would come and, and save the world from its sin. So this was important to the Jews. It's important to us. But in order for you to get a glimpse of how important this was um, and, and trying to compare it to out nowadays, it's like us who are, who are in Christ. And we are currently waiting for the resurrection of the dead and the glorification of our natural bodies. Right? Because it's, it's, when you look at how long they've waited, the promises that they had, what they look forward to, as, as we look, as we live in the last days, uh, this promise is similar and we've waited for, for a similar amount of time. And so when you see uh, this being pronounced or announced, it's the same thing as if God would give us some sort of indication today that 
the resurrection of the dead and the glorification of our natural bodies was about to happen. That would be pretty exciting news, right? In some way, somehow, if we were given that, uh, that, that information, that would be pretty amazing. It would be pretty amazing, especially when you talk about the glorification of our natural bodies because of, of what we, our bodies go through every single day. I'd imagine those who are, who are very sick right now, they'd be celebrating right now. I'd imagine those who are getting older and older and older and wiser, they'd be celebrating the fact that our natural bodies were about to be glorified. I'd imagine that if you lost somebody who was in Christ, you would be doing cartwheels and backflips because the resurrection of the dead was about to take place and you were going to be reunited with that person. So it would be big news. And so you can kind of, you can kind of see how big this event was uh, for those living in that day. Creation has been waiting on the event of the resurrection of the dead and the glorification of the natural bodies. For us, it would be the culmination of all of our hopes and all of our dreams. Yeah, it would be a big deal. And the pronouncement of the birth of the Messiah, it was a big deal. But look, this is what it teaches us about God. What God has promised, he will accomplish. You look throughout the Old Testament, you see one failure after another. One leader rises up and he fails and people lose hope. And that is repeated over and over and over. And the question is, where is this Savior? And God had always promised a Savior to come. He said he would come from the line of David. He would come and restore God's nation. He would, he, he would save God's people. And for a long time... You can, you can see the worry on the people's faces back then, like this is never going to happen. And then it was before them. God was about to fulfill his promise. The same thing applies to us today. We've been promised this resurrection of the dead, and we've been promised this glorification of the natural body. And time has gone by. And throughout the ages, people have asked, where is God? Where is the end? When will God save us from what is going on in this world? When will God save us from our circumstances? When will God make everything new? And if you are not human, um, you have had those thoughts, too, where it's like, where are you, God? Because I think we have all had those thoughts. Where are you, God? Why haven't you done? Why haven't you said? Where, where, is, where are your promises now, today? How can you help me? I'm losing faith. I'm losing hope. And yet God stands true. And, and so I hope that this here, this, the, the announcement of the, uh, the coming Messiah, will help your faith and teach you to hope that what God has promised, he will accomplish. And then we also have a question for the ages here. As I told you, Mary was about 12 or 13 years old. Um, she was young, yet she seemed wise when she was approached. 
Uh, maybe it was her being naive that made her sound so wise. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes kids ask the greatest questions, especially when it comes to God. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? When the announcement was made to her and, and, and she was made aware that she would be the mother of the Son of God, that she would be the one who would carry be the vessel for that, she says, how will this be? When it comes to God, isn't that the question we all have most of the time? Lord, how is it possible? Or how will it be possible? Or how in the world is that ever going to happen? Faith, biblically defined, is assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That is from Hebrews 1. In other words, it's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. See, there are many times when we face something and we want to believe God. We want to trust him. We we want to believe that he is still in control, but we, we need his help and we recognize that. And our prayer in those times is, I believe, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Well, when Mary asked that, Gabriel provided an answer to her question. Verse 35. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born. uh, The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That should ring a bell for you because we've seen that language before. In fact, we've seen similar language in the Old Testament, and and that's really important. It's really profound of what is happening here. I'll give you some examples. Uh, When the Spirit was present in creation, it was hovering over the waters. It was, in other words, overshadowed. It overshadowed the waters of the earth. Um, the Spirit overshadowed the tabernacle in a cloud of glory during the Exodus. The Spirit would overshadow Jesus when he anointed him for his earthly ministry. So we see this, this action of, 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 and this work of, of the Holy Spirit and how he overshadows things. In other words, he, he, he envelops, he, con- he just takes over. And so that was the same terminology that was used for Mary. In other words, the answer to Mary's question of how will this be was, it will be because God will make it happen. I want to tell you that's the answer to your question when you ask God, how in the world will it be? How can it be? How will you make that happen? Well, it will be because God will make it happen. He is Yahweh. He is sovereign. There is no one like him. Naturally, our question is, how will God make it happen? The answer is, for nothing will be impossible with God. And that's what we see in our passage. That's Gabriel's ultimate response. For nothing is impossible or nothing will be impossible with God. Now, as I look at that, that brings 
complete joy and hope and security. Now, we have to be careful because we can see how that verse can be misused very, very easily. Especially when we apply it to our own will. There's something that we want and we convince ourselves God's going to give it to us. Why? For nothing will be impossible with God. But that's not the correct way to use that. The correct way to apply that and to use it is that no matter what you face, no matter what trouble you endure, no matter what doubt you have, you need to understand that God, the God you worship is greater than anything that can come against you. You need to believe that your God, the God that you worship, is greater than your circumstance. And it may not work out like you hope or envisioned, but it will work out because nothing is impossible for him. Even the things that we can't even really think about, we can't even fathom, we don't know how it's going to work. Like when we die and we are resurrected, how does that work? There's no way to explain that. I don't know, but nothing is impossible with God. But what if our bodies are in the grave for for thousands and thousands of years and they disintegrate? How is God going to put all that back together? I have no idea, but nothing's impossible for him. How is God going to save me? Because I'm a sinner. I've always been a sinner and I just continue to sin. And even though I struggle with it, I fight against it every day. I feel unworthy. I feel unfaithful. How is he going to save me? I don't have the answer for that, but nothing is impossible with God. That can go on and on and on. And that's something that we have to acknowledge and we have to believe. Maybe your life is just totally falling apart and you're like, how am I ever going to pick up the pieces? Maybe you're in the middle of a divorce or maybe you're about to be. Maybe your relationship, your marriage is just, how is God ever going to save this marriage? Nothing's impossible for him. How is, how is God going to... How is God going to bring back my wayward child? I, I, I don't know. I don't have the answer for that. But nothing is impossible with him. It's a good thing that nothing is impossible with God. Because if anything was impossible for him, then I'll tell you what, you and I would be in some serious trouble. You and I were sinners headed towards destruction, but now we are children of God. That is an awesome thing. That seems impossible, and yet God has done it in our lives. We are fragile jars of clay, yet through God's providence, we are protected and provided for day after day. That is a wonderful example of the power of God. Outwardly, the Bible says, we are wasting away, but somehow, some way, by the power of God in us, inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. I, I don't know how that's possible, but it shows the power of God. 
When you look at God's providence, the sun, the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. Rain or vice versa. No, wait. No, that's right. East and west. Rain comes down from heaven and the streams never stop. Life goes on. Have you ever wondered how in the world does, do things just go on so perfectly? Life goes on for the living and the dead. Why? Because nothing is impossible with God. So, where does this leave us? What sort of, what, what should we do? What kind of application is there for this passage? Well, there's a lot. Number one, let us praise God. That like Mary, God chose us. us. He chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. Let's praise God that we are not saved by our own merits, that we are not saved by our own goodness, but that we are saved by grace through faith. Second of all, let us be thankful that what God says he will do, he will accomplish it. The incarnation shows that God never failed on a promise before, and he's not going to start failing today. Now, at the very beginning, I told you that the incarnation should be up there with the resurrection because it's that important. It's so important that you cannot be considered a Christian without believing in it. Amen. And the same is true for, again, the resurrection. See, the thing is, especially when you talk about Christianity, Many gods, and I, I use the lower G, many false gods are said to be resurrected. If you go from religion to religion, many of them are said to be resurrected. But the Christian God is the only one to enter his creation through a virgin birth. The incarnation sets Christ apart. The incarnation is as true as everything else or anything else in the Bible. It may be hard to understand or it may be hard to believe because of our finite minds, but that does not make it untrue. As far as us, we must remember what the angel Gabriel pronounced to Mary, for nothing will be impossible with God. Throughout your life, Mary's question is going to come into your mind. It already has. The question of how is it possible? How will God do this? That question is going to come through your minds in times of trials, times of sickness, in times of death. And even if you don't understand how God is going to do it, you must believe, however it works out, that nothing will be impossible with him. In anything that happens, in any of your circumstances, we must trust him always. Let's pray.